A few years ago, a minister and his family were in a time of transition. They'd resigned one ministry position, and then they were seeking God for direction for the next. And they knew for certain that he wanted them to step away from the church they were leading. They just did not know where he wanted them to go next. And that's a scary place to be. Leaving one position with no promise of another seemed crazy, but they knew they were following God's will. And frankly, not following God's will would be crazy. Not long after the resignation, another door opened up for them, and they felt good about that opening. It seemed like God was giving them the green light. Go for it. This is where I want you to go. And then unexpectedly, boom, door closed. It was devastating. They questioned what God was doing. They thought for sure they knew where he was leading, but that door was closed. Meanwhile, they began attending a nearby church led by a pastor they knew and trusted. And then God opened doors for them to be able to preach in other area churches. Their ministry, it seemed like, was in a holding pattern, never really touching down on a runway. But they could feel things were about to change soon. Late that spring, at the close of a midweek Bible study, their pastor stopped service and addressed them directly. He declared God was about to answer three prayers for this family. They accepted that prophetic word by faith, and within a few days, just as the pastor prophesied, Those answers arrived as if they had been ordered on Amazon. First, God worked a notable financial miracle for them. Then, a new ministry opportunity opened up that they had not even known existed. And then finally, the third miracle, their young daughter received the gift of the Holy Ghost. As a bonus, God provided them with a new house much closer to their new church and that new ministry opportunity. It was a challenging season for this young family in ministry, but it was also a time when their faith and their trust in God was tested and grew. And when God did speak, he went above and beyond in fulfilling his promises because we can believe what God has spoken. And we're going to hear a story all about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. Brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Hey, good weekend after Thanksgiving to you, God's Word for Life listeners. If you're listening here in these United States, you'll know we just came through the Thanksgiving holiday where we gave thanks for all of the who's and the what's in our lives for which we should be thankful. And some of you may still be in a tryptophan-induced sleep from all the turkey on Thanksgiving. I hope it was wonderful. Hope you got the chance to spend time with family and reflect on the goodness of God Well, today's episode is entitled From Cana to Capernaum. For all of you theologian Bible scholars out there, you'll know this is a story that happens in the book of John where Jesus works a miracle standing in Cana for a man who's in Capernaum. And that story stems from the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 50, where Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. So John 4, last week's episode, began with the account of Jesus who met the Samaritan woman by a well in Sychar, one of my absolute favorite New Testament stories. Because of her sinful past, it looked like she was a societal outcast, and yet Jesus took very precious time 
to minister to her. Then as John 4 progresses, Jesus encountered a man from a much different station in life. The KJV describes him as a certain nobleman. Other translations describe him as a royal official. He was everything. The woman at the well was not. She was near the bottom of the social ladder. He was standing on the top and reaching for higher. And yet, regardless of their drastically different lives, both of them responded to Jesus in faith. The Samaritan woman became a witness to her entire city. And the nobleman's dying son was healed, which was also a witness to that entire city. That reminds us, Jesus loves everybody. He loves the up and out. He loves the down and out. He loves those who have everything. He loves those who have nothing. He loves those who stand on the social ladder, and he loves those who stand looking up at the social ladder. Jesus loves everyone. So fret not. It's not about who you are or who you know in this world that matters. It's faith. If everybody knows you, you still have to have faith. If nobody knows you, you can have faith, and God can work a miracle in your life. We don't know everything about this particular nobleman, a royal official. We just know he was powerful, but against this illness that was destroying his son, he was powerless. And in an hour of distress, he heard a story that ignited a spark of hope. Jesus had come to Galilee. In fact, he was in Cana where he had performed his first miracle. And Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was not very far from Cana, but Jesus didn't go there because the people in Nazareth didn't believe that Mary's son, Joseph's boy, that kid who used to be a carpenter, who used to make cabinets for us, who delivered the paper on Sundays, there's no way he could be the Messiah. And Scripture says he did not mighty works there because of their unbelief. It is strange to me the people who should have known him most knew him least, and yet he continued to go throughout Galilee and share who he is and what he could do with those who would listen, those who would hear, those who would have faith. Those who should have hailed him as Messiah persecuted him. Eventually, they crucified him. In John 4, verse 44, the apostle John explained this by noting, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. I learned when I was at Gateway College that an expert was somebody defined as a person from out of town who carries a briefcase. And Jesus was not from out of town in Nazareth and probably didn't carry a briefcase. So they didn't listen. But there were cities who did. They acknowledged who he is, what he could do. And he visited those cities because faith draws God's attention. And so does need. God is attracted to need. The nobleman who was living in Capernaum lived approximately 15 miles away from Cana on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And this occurred centuries before modern travel. This was not a short distance. 15 miles is going from here to home, but not for this man. 15 miles, you might cover that in a day. But that didn't matter. His son was dying, and nobody, no doctor, nobody had been able to help him. We don't know what he was dealing with. We don't know why he was dying. We just know he was. Family had been called to the bedside. Loved ones were saying their final goodbyes. They were starting to call up the mourners to see if they had Thursday open for next week. And as the doctors looked on helplessly and family members embraced one another as they braced for the worst, the young man's dad heard a report Jesus was coming to Cana. He was going to be in Galilee, so he slipped away quietly from his son's bedside and headed out on the road to Cana. I want you to think about that for a moment. He has no guarantee Jesus will do anything 
and he's going to travel 15 miles one way to hope to have an audience with Jesus who might be able to do something about it. And maybe he's too busy, and maybe he'll miss him. He's going to leave his son's bedside. There's a very good chance, if Jesus does not heal him, that his son dies while he's gone. And the crushing guilt that he would carry the rest of his life, knowing that he left his son when his son needed him most, when he weighed all of that in his mind, he decided, my son doesn't need me here as much as he needs me there, bringing Jesus here. Let me clear up something for all of us. I've heard it said when people are having a difficult time with something, and certainly there's a balance, I get that. But if you can do nothing for somebody except pray for them, you have done the greatest thing you could do for them. If somebody in your family or somebody in your church family or neighborhood needs your help and you have clothes and you have food, James says, don't just tell them, hey, be warmed and filled. Actually, Give them clothes to keep them warm. Give them food to keep them filled. But if you don't, or if what they're dealing with is beyond your pay grade, you cannot heal them. You cannot work a miracle in their life. The best thing you can do for them is pray for them. Go get Jesus and bring him to them. So please don't ever let anybody say, all all they ever did was pray for me. Well, they just did the greatest favor they could do for you because they brought the one who could do anything right to your bedside. If somebody we love is dealing with a serious illness, then we seek out the best doctors and the most advanced treatments. If a child is battling addiction, parents have been known to mortgage their homes to pay for rehab. When we are desperate, we'll do anything, pay any price, endure any hardship to find an answer. Love will motivate us to do anything and everything we can. But here's the blessing of being a child of God. When we have reached the end of our rope, and before we get there, We go to Jesus and we bring him where we need him to work a miracle. When doctors cannot find a cure and experts are baffled and nonplussed and flummoxed by the problem, we can, according to Hebrews chapter 4, come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Here's a question. What worries or cares do you need to give to God during this season of your life? Now let's picture nobleman's on the road from Capernaum on the way to Cana. He's making good time. He's on his horse or his mule. If he's on his mule, he's making less than good time, but he's not stopping. He's not stopping to look at Galilee's largest rocking chair or Cana's foot-high pies. He's getting to where Jesus is to make sure his son lives. And when he had arrived in Cana, He probably asked around, hey, does anybody know where Jesus is staying? Jesus, I'm looking for Jesus. Has anybody seen Jesus? And when he finally finds Jesus, he pleaded with him, would you please come, sir, please come. Heal my son. He's dying. You're his only hope. You can hear desperation in his voice as he begged Jesus, please, I know you can do something. Please do something. If you do nothing, my son will die. I'm out of options. Jesus, you are my last hope. He was sure if he could just convince Jesus to go back with him to Capernaum, everything would be all right. Can you see it in your mind? What it's like, Jesus, this homeless, itinerant, traveling evangelist, meets a royal official, and the royal official realizes, I'm not in charge here. You are. At work, I call all the shots, but here, 
I call none of them. Jesus, this gentle Savior who took children into his arms and blessed them, Jesus, who described himself as meek and lowly in heart, the nobleman does not know how Jesus will respond. If he was expecting to meet a meek and gentle Jesus, then he was sorely disappointed. Instead of a hug and a handshake, Jesus responded with what sounded more like a rebuke. Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Whoa, maybe the disciples gave Jesus a sideways glance. Is Jesus having a bad day? That's not the Jesus we see in Sunday school. So here's a question. Why do you think Jesus responded to this nobleman with a rebuke? John doesn't tell us. Jesus didn't tell John. John doesn't tell us. But it's pretty easy to imagine God was testing this nobleman's faith. He did that several other times. He did that with a woman from Syrophoenicia. In essence, he called her a dog. Now, he called her a little dog, but he still called her a dog. It might have been that Jesus was testing this nobleman's faith like he tested that lady's faith. He'd already been denied once. Jesus said, hey, unless you see a sign and wonder, you're just not going to believe. But he came right back in and he said, sir, please, you've got to come down before my child dies. And Jesus made it very clear that persistence is key in effective prayer. Perhaps you've heard of or will remember the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18, where a woman who needed an answer from the judge He wouldn't give it to her, so she just kept coming back to the courtroom, coming back to the courtroom. It's traffic court. She was there. It's felony court. She was there. It's it's family court, and she was there. Finally, he gave her an answer because he was so tired of her showing up all the time. And Luke 18 summarizes the meaning of the parable with this. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Just because we don't get an answer the first time doesn't mean we should not ask again. And we should ask according to the will of God, Lord, I need this, but your will be done, not mine. If you haven't received an answer to your prayer yet, don't stop asking. Don't be discouraged. True faith will persevere regardless of what may seem like a setback. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus healed people using a variety of different methods. In this particular story, the nobleman expected Jesus, travel with me back home to Capernaum, heal my son, you can come back to Cana and everything will be fine. You just, what, a day, maybe two out of your way. But Jesus absolutely exceeded this man's expectations when he simply responded, go your way, your son lives. Now I'm thinking if I was the nobleman, I might be thinking, okay, I appreciate that. I, I, uh, I don't know how this whole healing thing works. I'm, I'm, I'm not the healer. You are. So, but what? I mean, I'm going to travel 15 miles back to Capernaum, and what happens if he's not healed? What, what then? How do I get a hold of you? Are you going to be here? Are you going to come later? Can I have your number? I mean, what do I do? But Jesus spoke with such authority, such power, that the man believed. John reported the man believed the word Jesus had spoken, and he went his way. There's no record that he expressed any shred of doubt about what Jesus said. He didn't continue to beg and plead with Jesus to come with him. He didn't demand proof that he had actually been healed. He just took him at his word and went home. Oh, well, appreciate that. God bless you, or you bless you, or however that whole thing works. I'm out of here. What about us? Do we trust Jesus enough to take him at his word? If God has spoken a promise to you, a word to you, do you trust him to keep that word? We need to, because he will. 
There is power in Jesus' words. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, though, that says the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Jesus' words can do anything, but we do need to believe. Here's a question. How do we demonstrate faith in God's promises while waiting to see them fulfilled? What thoughts ran through that nobleman's mind as he made his return trip home back to Capernaum? Did he doubt, or was his faith soaring the entire way? Jesus promised his son would be healed, but there's no confirmation. All he has, all he has is a word from the Lord that his son would live. As he got closer to Capernaum, the servants ran out on the road to meet him, and they were smiling and singing and They gave him the joyful news. Great news, sir. Great news, sir. Your son lives. A smile wider than the Mediterranean broke out across his face as he heard those words. Your son lives. He asked them a question. It's very interesting. He asked them, when did he begin to get better? And they said, at one o'clock, the fever totally left him. Sir, here's the miracle. He didn't just begin to get better. He didn't just start feeling better. The fever was gone. That fatal fever the doctors said would be his undoing. Gone. And the nobleman thought back. It was one o'clock when Jesus said, Your son lives. Things change when God speaks. We are healed When God speaks, we are saved, we are set free, we are delivered, we are redeemed when God speaks. We just simply need to believe what God has said and trust him until we see that promise fulfilled. We may not immediately see a change, and we may see a change. Either way, God is God, his word is true, and we can trust that what he says will come to pass. Here's the final question. What word? Have you personally received from God? What promise has God spoken to you? Now, whenever the Lord speaks to me, whether it's just in prayer during my devotion while somebody is preaching or I'm listening to a song or just I feel like there's something (laughs) that comes to my mind that's a lot smarter than I could ever come up with on my own mind, and I know it was the Lord and I know it confirmed by his word. Then I write that down in Evernote, and I tag it, word from the Lord. And every once in a while, when my faith may feel like it's closer to the basement than the ceiling, I go to Evernote, and I look back on all those promises God has made and all those times the Lord has spoken, and I remind myself what the Lord said he will do. I can trust him. I recommend you do the same. Write that down on paper. Write that down digitally, however you want to keep it. But make sure you don't forget what the Lord has promised, so whenever he performs it, You remember, it was this time when God spoke. Okay, we wrap this up. We constantly have faith in what others say. You probably went to work this week on the word of your employer that promised if you will come into work and you will do your work, we will pay you for doing your work at the end of the work week with a paycheck for your work. We enter into that sacred marriage covenant based on spoken words, vows made to one another. I take thee to be my lawful and I will love you and honor you and cherish you until death do us part. Parents even expect their children to trust their words. I promise if you will just clean your room, we will go out and we will get frozen custard if you just clean your room. And as much as I'm sure you loathe to admit it, 
every parent at some point has said to a child who has finally asked the last question, because I said so. We have authority in our words as parents. We're telling our children, you can trust me and you need to obey me because I said so. If we trust people like that who are flawed and fallible, why can't we trust God? You ever wondered if God ever gets frustrated because of our continual doubt and questions? Now, let me say this. I don't think it's wrong to question God by asking something like, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. You said that if we pray, you would heal, but they were not healed. Or you promised you would provide for us, but we're really struggling. Would you please help me? There are times in Scripture where a man in Mark chapter 9 told Jesus, I do believe, yes, but you got to help my unbelief. <laughs> in this faith race, Lord, uh, one foot is way out in front and one foot is dragging behind. I need you to help me help my unbelief. Jesus understands our doubt. He understands our questions. I do believe, though, if we always question, always doubt, never have faith, at some point, I do wonder if God tires of that. Let's trust him that what he has done, he can do and will do again. And even the things he has never done before, he can do a new thing because Almighty God will keep his word. I want to pray that the Lord would increase our faith and then help us to trust him until we see his word is fulfilled. Would you pray that with me right now? Lord Jesus, I love you. Increase our faith, I pray, to trust what you have promised you will perform, that what you have prophesied to us, you will bring it to pass. You'll fulfill it. I ask you today to help us to put our faith and our trust in you. If we will trust others, certainly we need to trust you. You have never failed us. There's never failed one word of all your good promise. Not one dot, not one line will pass away until all is fulfilled. You promised it, and I trust you today. I ask you, Lord Jesus, for those who are struggling with their faith, help them to have faith, to look to you, to trust you, to believe you, to hear your voice and follow what you tell us to do. We love you, Jesus. Help us to have the faith of this nobleman to take you at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope this has been a blessing to you and helped increase your faith. Head on over to the God's Word for Life area on Pentecostal Publishing. Before you do that, though, be sure to click subscribe, follow, like, notify, and share. Share this podcast with others and let them know what God is doing in your life as a result of God's Word for Life. Let them know about the podcast, and hopefully I trust it will bless them as I pray it has blessed you. When you head over to PentecostalPublishing.com, you will find all kinds of wonderful resources. You will find the God's Word for Life curriculum. For youth, children, and adults, we're getting ready to enter into the winter season, not just in the temperature, but also in our God's Word for Life curriculum. So head over to the PentecostalPublishing.com area, and you'll find all of those lesson guides, resource kits, videos. You will find the devotional guides and devotional activity pages. You'll find wonderful resources, God's Word for Life. Just search for curriculum. And then in addition to all that, there are books and music, of course, Bibles, Bible studies. And there's another great opportunity this Christmas season. Use the promo code GWFL10, and you'll save 10% off your entire order. So if you spend 500 bucks on PentecostalPublishing.com, all my math scholars out there, you've already figured it out. You'll save 50, 
five zero dollars. It's a lot of money, especially around Christmas. You'll save it. Just use God's Word for Life's promo code GWFL10 and make sure that's the first time you use that promo code. Otherwise, can't use it twice. It's a single-use code. We got to make money, too. That's the way it works. Okay, another podcast I'd love for all of our teachers. If you're a teacher, please listen up. The Formed Podcast is on our YouTube channel. So search Pentecostal Publishing. And it's on Google, Apple, and Spotify. And it is Training Teachers in the Local Church. A brand new episode is airing right now in the end of November. And it's an episode with Jodana Flowers on how do I teach in under 45 minutes. So if you're in that role, you can find that there. There are some other episodes there. There are video on YouTube and then audio on Google, Apple, and Spotify. We just crossed over 198,000 downloads. We are so close to 200,000 downloads. I'm so thankful you're making God's Word for Life part of your devotion and hopefully part of your discipleship to help others grow in their faith. Next week, as I mentioned, we start a brand new series, brand new season, the winter quarter, and our series is called God's Holiness and Ours. And our very first episode is entitled Our Holy God. I'm looking forward to looking at him as holy, just as Isaiah saw him. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.